Welcome back to America Speaks. After our previous conversation with Norman Patrick Brown, we received so many inspired messages, and I am so excited today to bring you part two with Norman on his work as a writer, a filmmaker, and his lifelong dedication to activism to create a world filled with peace, harmony, and protecting all of life. What's so inspiring to me is to watch how your efforts, Norman, have translated into your work and into your art and into your craft. This leads me to talk about Rainbow Boy. This is a film that Norman has been working on for several years now. Norman, I would like you to just tell us a little bit about what about the story made you want to make this a movie. Just give us a sense of what the story is about. I came into being a writer because I really had no other way of healing myself. And the life that I lived and the life that I experienced, the life that I shared, but most importantly, the life that I experienced. Getting back to your earlier question about my life as an activist, I started when I was 13 years old. I I was in junior high. And my brother, who was in high school, organized the walkout. Chinle High School. About a quarter mile from there was Chinle Junior High. Well, a couple of nights before, we were watching NBC about the Wounded Knee takeover and how lives were lost. And my brother says, we have to do something. So we're organizing a walkout out of Chinle High School. Can you do that for Chinle Junior High? And I said, sure. He goes, I'm going to come there in the morning, then I'm going to call you. You come to the office, then you go down the halls and say, this is a walkout in support of Wounded Knee. And we did that. Four or five dozen of our young people walked out. So that was my first real action into the American Indian Movement. Then after that, in 74, when I was 14, I hitchhiked to Farmington, where I participated in these massive Navajo protests because of the murders of several Navajo men by white high school students. From there, that same year in 74, I attended my second American Indian Movement AIM conference in South Dakota. I hitchhiked up there and From there, I was involved in my first armed struggle in Kenora, Canada. I was 14 years old, and I snuck across the border, and I held my own there with my people from Canada. Place Kenora, where the city of Kenora took over this land that belonged to the Ojibwe people, and the Ojibwe people responded by having an armed occupation. Well, anyway, I participated in that in 74, and the next year after that, I was part of an armed group that went to Pine Ridge, South Dakota, where three years after the Wundanee takeover, there was a lot of deaths and there's a lot of violence and a lot of beatings and killings on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation against supporters of the American Indian Movement. The violence perpetrated against the traditional people were called the Goon Squad. Guardians of the Oglala Nation, which was run by Dick Wilson, who was the chairman at the time. They were armed by the FBI, by the federal government, law enforcement, to quell this uprising, which they called the American Indian Movement. A lot of the supporters at that time were being killed and murdered and beaten. And they asked the American Indian Movement to go there and help protect them against this violence that was inspired by the Oglala government and the Bureau of Indian Affairs, along with the FBI, to crush the American Indian movement there on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Well, anyway, I was there, and there was a shootout where two FBI agents were killed, and my brother friend, Joe Stentz, was also killed. It was quite a violent time in the 70s. 
after that, I came home and I immersed myself into the uranium issue here on the Navajo Nation and the coal mining issue. So most of my life, I've supported the grassroots people of the various communities on the Navajo Nation. One major cause was the forced relocation of thousands of Navajos from their lands because of a historical agreement that became the Navajo-Hopi land dispute and where hundreds of families were relocated from their homeland that they grew up on for generations. So that was really a difficult time for me. And getting back to my writing, as I went across the Navajo Nation, which is the largest tribe in North America today, it has the largest enrolled membership of any tribe in North America as I was growing up, I went across the Navajo Nation at all these different areas of struggle. In 1932, the Navajo Nation government was created by the federal government. They created the Navajo Nation Council, and its sole purpose was to create a legislative group to allow the exploitation of natural resources, coal, oil, gas, uranium, and water, and the forests that we have. So, in essence, the Tribal Council was developed by the federal government with no input from the Navajo tribe, from the Navajo people, and its sole purpose was to exploit our lands for the betterment of the Southwest and for America. If you look back, we had over 1,200 uranium mines that were dug on our lands. The bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were direct correlation from the uranium exploitation of the mining on our lands. Huh. When the federal government came to our lands, they knew the impact of radiation. Even though they knew that humans could be severely impacted by radiation, our people, our men, thousands of our men went inside the uranium mines without any breathing apparatus, no protection. They worked in those mines and they brought out millions and millions of tons all across Navajo land that contributed to the United States government becoming the number one world nuclear power. So communities were devastated. Water was forever contaminated. Out of over 1,200 mines, there's a little under 500 that are still open. Were there any reparations at all with this mindless mining? They've tried these reparations by developing these various congressional acts that would pay former uranium miners compensation for the illnesses, the health implications of being a miner, a transport driver, or anything directly correlated with the uranium industry on naval lands. I've went to dozens and dozens of communities on the Navajo Nation throughout my lifetime. And I've seen elders, grandmas, grandpas, medicine people crying because of what the uranium industry had done to their lands, to their culture. I've seen at various grassroots communities that were facing relocation, forcible removal by the federal government from their lands, their cultural ties to their lands were forever severed. I've seen them cry in Utah, where part of our Navajo Nation were facing oil and gas pollution back in the 70s, where it severely impacted Navajo communities. I was there as a teenager. I've seen all these major oil companies have no regard for human life or for our lands and property. And this was in collusion with the Navajo Nation Council, which I stated earlier, sole purpose was to supply America with all the natural resources. I went to these coal strip mines, these cultural sites, these sacred places. Over my lifetime, I've seen thousands and thousands of elders. And my people suffer lack of electricity, lack of water infrastructure, the poverty, because of the system of governance that we continue to have today called the Navajo Nation Council, the Navajo Nation government. Nothing has changed. 
And you hold the pain of that lifetime of not just observation, but wanting to fix it, or at least be able to change the white man's way of being responsible for this. So when you started writing, you talked about you started writing to heal yourself. Yeah, to me, each word was a tear. Wow. I mean, you could fill my body 12 times, probably more, with the tears of my people, my elders. I had no other way of expressing myself so I started writing I started writing when I was very young and I realized that the written word was very powerful but the camera itself was very powerful and theater was very powerful the creative art expression the creative form was very powerful so when I started becoming an actor in professional theater I worked in New York and Canada in independent films principal roles I became a playwright. I learned uh, story structure, the Hollywood formula, screenwriting. I learned a little bit of writing, how they, the writing formats for sitcoms. So when I was in Los Angeles, I just soaked up as much as I could during those five years I was there. And I took it home. And I said, how can I use this to help heal our people? How can I use this to remind our people of who we are? How do I use these skills to help heal our communities? To educate our communities about diabetes, alcoholism, cancer, all these various health impacts. So that's how I began to form my life as a writer and as an actor. Is that, would you say, the birth of Rainbow Boy? Yeah, I mean, this really started when I met you in 1989. I started 1982 as an actor in Canada and in New York. But 1989 was really my first time I was hired by the Navajo Nation government education department to create these K-12 through films about Navajo culture, uh, curriculum-based de development. Well, I've seen firsthand how you inspire young people. I, I think back on it often and would love to revisit those days. And I just want to get a little bit of a sense on this extraordinary story of a young man who wanders into a cave that was forbidden or was on a spiritual, at a spiritual vortex on the reservation. Tell us what happens to him. Well, I was asked to help produce this documentary and the producer there that I was working with told me that he works for a group of film angels. I said, what do they do? He goes, they develop film projects for people of color and you might be interested. So anyway, he asked me to shoot a short film five to seven minutes. So I agreed. So I wrote a 24-page short story and I found some money and I got the characters and the locations and the DP. And I created this story that I had a dream of this prophecy. It was about this man who went to this cave and he couldn't get out. So from there, that's when I started writing this story. Initially, it was called The Cave, but later on, I named it The Rainbow Boy. It was about a ancient warrior who was warned by his grandpa not to go into this cave. The warrior eagle catcher, the main character, asked him, why? Because if you go in that cave, you'll never come out. So eagle catcher is going hunting and he follows this deer into this cave and that's where he gets caught and he can't get out. So he finally gets out. He hears this music, this, this foreign music, and he follows the music. It's heavy metal. And he comes out today. Wow. And he's dressed like from 700 years ago. 
But before he went into the cave, he had a conversation with his blind grandfather called Yellow Eyes. And Yellow Eyes, his grandpa, shared with Eagle Catcher a vision that he had. And he said that, I had a vision the other night. And Eagle Catcher said, so he had a nightmare again. And the old man says, sometimes nightmares become reality. And he goes, what did you dream about? The old man says, I dreamed about this warrior who went to this place where men became women, women became men. Where there was tsunamis, there was earthquakes, there was people fighting over water, there was people starving, there was wars, there was religious wars. Humanity was in a downward spiral. Mother Earth was dying. I went to this place where there was nothing but sand. There was no vegetation, there was no water. So that was the message he imparted to the Rainbow Boy. And he said, this warrior cried. And the Rainbow Boy says, that's bullshit. Warriors don't cry. He starts laughing. And he said, in my vision, in my dream, this warrior wasn't crying for himself. He was crying for what had happened to the land and to humanity. He goes, well, Grandpa, I'm going to go look for this deer. So he ends up being stuck in that cave. When he comes out, the vision that his grandfather had, he begins to live it. So while he's here in the modern era today, he befriends a young Navajo teenager, and he befriends this other Navajo that speaks Navajo to him. And within the movie, he sees the prophecy come alive. He sees these various visions of the tsunamis, the earthquakes, the religious wars. He sees the destruction of Mother Earth. So throughout this movie, through his eyes, the audience hopefully will see that we are in a real critical place today. Mm -hmm. And... I wanted to use this character to tell the world that we're in the last throes of our survival. If we don't change this now, we're going to lose this great, beautiful ball of life like no other in the universe. We are truly a gift to the universe. This film was shot all in the Navajo language. And over these past five to six years, I became very ill. I was really sick. So I raised money on Kickstarter. I found individual investors. I created this story in piecemeal. It took two years to shoot, and I had to write additional scenes. I raised money. So finally, now I have a 90-minute rough cut, and I'm trying to find completion funds to finish it. I'm getting my health back. I feel much better. So I'm focusing now on completing the movie, The Rainbow Boy. And they asked me, why do you call it The Rainbow Boy? I said, well, I remember a story that Grandpa said one time. That a long time ago, way before the beginning of time, that humans in their spiritual form used to converse and sing and laugh and visit with the holy beings. They used to travel into different worlds on a rainbow. And I said, wow, there's the rainbow boy. Basically, it's a story in the Navajo language we want to put into subtitles into the six official languages of the UN. Oh, that's incredible, Norman. And... One of the things that I pitched to a couple of major investors, and I had some meetings in Hollywood, nothing came of it, but they asked me, so Norman, what's the hook here? And I said, well, imagine the whole world united for 24 hours. They said, what do you mean? I said, once the movie's done, we could have a 60-day countdown. Within this 60-day countdown, people can download it. And whoever downloads this movie, there's a pledge that they would hold a vigil, a prayer walk a ceremony, a concert, or whatever way to express the message of the movie. And I said, humanity for 24 hours from the jungles of the Congo, you know, to the Arctic winterland, to the streets of New York, Paris, Tokyo, China, all over the world. What a healing. Yeah, within 24 hours, the story would resonate. 
that we are in a very critical time. So that's kind of was the hook, the idea of the Rainbow Boy. I want to say this work is a testament to all you have stood for. Because in one sense, it's extraordinary to be a warrior. It's extraordinary to have fought the fight that you continue to do. But it's such an opportunity to be a visionary and to inspire people to change. I agree with you. And the reason why I say this humbly is that after I finished shooting these various scenes, I got real sick. I went to different specialists. I changed my diet. I went to medicine people. I've had ceremonies, acupuncturists. I did everything I could to heal myself. And the test I had with the various specialists, nothing could be found. I had equilibrium issues. I had breathing issues. You know, I was forever sick. I was like exhausted and fatigued. There's really not much I could do other than reach deep within myself. As long as I held on to this movie, to complete it was what I believe saved my life because I thought I had a tumor in my brain. I lost vision of one eye. I had these various issues of my physical body. And there's really nothing I could do but just reach deep down into myself. And I realized that it was this message. And you were the messenger. And what a metamorphosis. It really was akin to a snake discarding of its old skin. I would rather say a moth or a butterfly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I love this idea of having a worldwide community focus on uniting and healing. No one has ever done that, have they? I don't believe so. At the closing of the film, there's a statement that says, prophecies weren't made to portend the future. Prophecies were made to change the future. You know, so it's up to us. We're beyond colors now. We're beyond religion. We're beyond that right now. It doesn't matter what color we are. It doesn't matter who we pray to, what names we pray to. It doesn't matter the class issue, racism issue, the economic issue. We're way beyond that. We can't survive alone. We have to survive together. Absolutely. And I just wanted to say thank you to all our allies, our non-native allies, our brothers and sisters who have stood with us over the past decades and centuries, who have stood with my people and believed in us and supported us. I just wanted to thank you. You may not be indigenous. You may not feel that you fit in with us, but just realize we're all one human family. Without your support, our non-native relatives, we would be in a worse place than we are now as indigenous people. So I'm thankful my elders are thankful. I know a lot of my people are very thankful for all of you who have stood beside us and with us. And there's no other way. No. We have to come together because this is all we have. We are all we got. I want to just say in conclusion that this conversation today has been one of the most inspiring I have ever had. I was very excited to have the opportunity to have you join my lineup on this podcast series, which is devoted to activism. And I knew that I would learn something. And if anybody would like to go onto your website and learn about how to become a part of the effort regarding Rainbow Boy, where do people find you? You can contact me at in as a Norman 
P-A-T Brown at Yahoo. I want to share briefly like a conversation I had with this white brother that I met. He asked me a question. He says, I want to be a part of this. And I said, what do you want to be a part of? He goes, I want to be part of the struggle. I want to go. I want to fight beside your people. I want to stand there with them. And I told him there's many ways of supporting the people. But really what we want to do is support all of humanity. And that's the main goal. This is what the fight is about. So he says, so what do I do? I said, I'll tell you what I do. And he goes, sure. Can you share that with me? And I said, well, I'm going to share with you something that was given to me by my grandmother. She told me, I'm going to share something with you. It'll carry on through life and it'll define your existence. It'll show you how to become who you're supposed to be. And this was a very deep conversation in Navajo. And I tried to grasp it, interpret it as best as I could. And I shared with him and I told him, this is what grandma told me. The word life is very holy. Life is a female form. The giver of life is female. Always remember that, son. There's mother water, mother fire, mother mountain, mother rain, mother four-legged, mother healing plants, mother trees, mother insect, mother life beings, mother humanity. She said, this is what life is. Always remember that in your prayers and realize that this life that we speak of is female, that the female life form is forgiveness, is peace, is happiness, is unconditional love, is harmony. This is what you must always remember, son. And I told him, go out to your place in nature, wherever it might be, by the lake, the ocean, the trees, the mountains, the deserts, wherever it might be, sit down and connect with your mothers and tell them, this is me, your son. I'm your child. I'm your grandchild. I'm your precious sonny boy. I pray for you. I want you to live. I want you to survive so that I may live. I might survive. Not only can he say that, but we all can say that. Go out to that special place. Take a cup and pour that water and place it before you and speak to it. Then put your intention into that prayer of healing. Then drink that water. You become your prayer. You become your healing. When you go out, offer your prayer to humanity. That's what they call humanity, the five-fingered people. Grandma says, that's why our prayers and our songs were made. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what faith you believe in. You always come back to that place, and it's life. I just wanted to impart that this female world is truly a sacred place for all of us. We've forgotten that. We forgot about the female form. We forgot about our female, our mothers, our aunts, our grandmas, our daughters, our granddaughters, our nieces, all of us, including myself. We forgot about what life truly is. In my ancient belief system, the medicine people tell us that the world is made of energy. You can create good energy or you can create bad energy. You can create life or you can destroy life. That you can create your own universe or you can destroy others' universe. So what I'm saying is that we may not be there on the front lines physically, but what we can contribute is through this life energy, this universal energy of blessing, of healing. In the best way I could, I tried to write that within the Rainbow Boy, is to look at ourselves. Who are we? Where do we come from? But most importantly, where are we going? It's up to us individually to decide that.
Am I going alone or are we going together? If we think of we, if we think of us, there's nothing that we can't fix. But until then, we're in a world of hurt. So that's the message of grandma and grandpa that I've carried, that many of our cultures carry, just to remind ourselves that we are energy in a universe of energy. And that energy can be love or it can be hate. And it's up to us to choose. That's just what I wanted to impart to everybody, that life is female, that we have to honor all life. Amen. Honestly, this was such a healing for me. So... My dear brother, Norman, who I am so privileged to know, and also who has kept my eyes pretty open in the last 25, 30 years, I am just so thrilled that you're feeling better. And I also feel we really, all of us want to see your film finished and out there. And we want all of us get that 24 hour worldwide community together because that would be an unbelievable healing. Yes, it would be. Norman, this is a landmark conversation, and you have truly filled my spirit. This episode, which I'm titling What Life Truly Is, is our gift to our listeners from America Speaks. And also, please go to our website at www.tishlampert.org for news of my forthcoming book. And once again, I want to thank James Koblenz and Kim Langbacker, without whom this episode would not be possible. And remember, America Speaks believes every one of us has a story. And a voice. <laughs>